technology is a double-edged sword. It gives us so much on the one hand, it gives us solutions to problems. And yet on the other hand, it always can become a devastating tool in the hands of those who have malintention. Hi, I'm Theo Finnegan from the English Department at Vancouver Island University. Welcome to Conversations in the Arts and Humanities. We introduce you to the people and passions of the Faculty of Arts and Humanities at VIU and share stories about events and projects happening on campus. I'm speaking with Dr. Jennifer Griffiths, who on Friday, September 24th from 10 till 11.30, will give a presentation titled Women Artists and Italian Futurism. The presentation will be streamed online via Zoom with a live audience in the Malaspina Theatre. Jennifer Griffiths has a PhD in the history of art from Bryn Mawr College. She previously taught for the American University, Iowa State University, and the University of Georgia in Italy. She was a staff writer for the American Academy in Rome between 2013 and 2015. Her research has been published in Design Culture, Women's Art Journal, Women's Studies, Quarterly, and elsewhere. Her first monograph, Marisa Mori and the Futurists, a woman artist in an age of fascism, will be published by Bloomsbury next year. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you for joining me. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you for having me. You're currently living in, and working in Italy, which sounds quite nice, uh, I think. Uh, can you tell me a bit about how you got there? Uh, how did you end up in Italy teaching and working or work, researching and working? And how does VIU factor into that story? I've actually been resident in Italy for a decade now, and it's always called me back because of my work, which is difficult to do elsewhere. Um, but I'm originally Canadian, so I was born in Ottawa, and my parents live now on uh, Vancouver Island. And so in 2020, uh, I and my husband made a rather ill-fated decision to try to come back to Canada. And I say ill-fated because, of course, it was the year of the pandemic. <laughs> Bad timing. <laughs> exactly worked out as we planned. And it was a very difficult uh, transition to make. So I taught for VIU um, one semester online during all of this. Um, and I find myself back in Italy now because of the difficulties that my husband and my sons faced. And for the interim, we're going to stay here, but we still have a house on Vancouver Island. Um, and of course, we we will be back and forth. Um, that's that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, so is your husband Italian or? He's actually Ecuadorian. Okay. And we met, very, very international family. Yes. We met in Rome. So he was working for the UN and I was doing research. Um, and so, you know, Rome kind of brought us together. Uh, and ultimately, that's why I ended up staying uh, for reasons of work and, of course, personal reasons as well. So your first book, um, Marisa Mori and the Futurists, A Woman Artist in the Age of Fascism, is, is coming out uh, next year. Um, I think. Congratulations, by the way. That's Thank fantastic. You. You um, could you talk a little bit about 
how did you arrive at this project? Like, has has futurism and and women and, and gender and futurism always been something you've been interested in? Is it a relatively new project? Um, the the interest in Italy, where did that come from? A, a little bit about your research interests and where they where they stem from. Yeah, well, I was very lucky because from a young age, I was exposed to language and travel, and I was always very, very interested in particularly other languages. So I went to university, and when I went off to university, I had the intention of doing international relations, and I went to the American University of Washington, Mm -hmm. D.C. And when I got there, um, I didn't love international relations, um, but what I did love was a study abroad program I did in Rome. And on that program, I took first one and then a whole slew of art history courses. Um, And because of a wonderful professor that I had named Terry Kirk, who was a specialist in modern Italian architecture, uh, I fell in love with the subject. And luckily for me, when I got back to the American University in DC, I discovered that they had a feminist art history program, which was equally uh, compelling and drew me in. And one of the projects I worked on during that time um, was a project about futurism and women. And that's where my first uh, interest was was peaked. And subsequently, I ended up doing a Peggy Guggenheim internship. Um, And they have a wonderful collection that I spent many, many hours in. Um, And that that um, that heightened my interest, let's say, in the oddities and uh, paradoxes and particularities of futurism, which I found to be a very self-contradictory kind of a movement. And I wanted to know more about that. And so um, when I did my master's, I did an unrelated topic to kind of uh, maybe move into a new territory. I worked on an artist named Carol Rama. And then when I went back to do my PhD, I ended up coming back to the futurists because I felt that there was still so much uh, to explore there. And I did a dissertation on uh, uh, women artists and arrow paint, a subfield within, uh, let's say, futurism. In particular, futurism has often been divided into an early part and a later part, or, you know, uh, what has sometimes been called by certain scholars second futurism. Uh, What that refers to is really after the deaths of sort of key figures like Umberto Boccioni and Antonio Santelia, um, the epicenter of futurism moved from Milan to Rome. And in Rome, during the 20s and 30s, there was a kind of new uh, wave of futurist interests. And among the interests that uh, continued to blossom within futurism, of course, uh, was for all things mechanical. And one of the great miraculous inventions of the time was the airplane. And so uh, caught up certainly in the politics of the time as well, uh, the idea of flying in an airplane, of experiencing that uh, different worldview and then of translating that into art uh, blossomed into a category of painting that is called arrow painting. That sounds fascinating. And um, as so, I don't know if you can see behind me on the shelf up there, I build little model plastic kit airplanes. <laughs> so I'm kind of interested in planes. Yeah. Um, so I, I will have to investigate that further. Um, that sounds great. It reminds me a little bit of, this is a bit of a tangent, but I know in World War One, thinking you know, sort of ballpark um, era, they had camouflage 
I think mainly for milit- for warships called dazzle camouflage, which was not not sort of like regular camouflage, but was like very jagged and angular and and lots of sort of weird lines on the ships. And I, I seem to remember, I don't know if I'm making this up yeah. maybe, but maybe there was a bit of a connection between, I mean, obviously not like literally like they hired futurists. There to was do a it. picture of it circulated, yeah. I remember a while back, and I don't remember exactly what the connection was, but I remember that there was one, yes. Yeah. Um, some of these um, avant-gardist designs made their way into ship camouflage. Yeah. I don't know how effective they were. Yeah. No, I was wondering that too, because it seems to kind of stand out actually rather than exactly. Hide, but, but yeah, no, really fascinating. Um, and especially among the futurists, if they did that sort of thing, it was usually reds and yellows and blues. So quite striking. Yeah, yeah. yeah. How would you classify yourself? And classifications are always problematic and never tell us, you know, everything about someone. But um, I, I was looking at your LinkedIn page, actually, in preparation for this, and it says that you are an independent art historian. So it's always very important, actually, especially for students who might be yes. listening to this, yes. to have a kind of model of what's possible and what people do and the problem yes. they encounter. And, of course, I previously, um, before coming to work with BIU, I had been... Um, an art historian and uh, academic coordinator for a program in Cortona, Italy called the University of Georgia. And they have a really great program uh, dedicated to mostly uh, the arts. And so it's mostly artists who come. Mm. Um, And then what happened is that I had a second baby. And, you know, that's what happens to women in academia. They make choices. And oftentimes, unfortunately, they they do have to make a choice. We can't always have it all. And the job that I did for uh, Georgia was very intense. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was often six days a week. It was often unregular hours. I Mm -hmm. traveled frequently. And so with a new baby, as well as a five-year-old, and then subsequently in the year of the pandemic, discovering that my second baby was deaf and had to have surgery and had and had to have difficult, you know, things that he yeah. faced. I, I made the decision to leave that uh, position. And so at the moment, I have decided um, this year I haven't been teaching yeah. or I have taught only for VIU in the spring of 2021 and then yes. came back here and I haven't been teaching. Um, but I plan to go back to teaching next year and it will be very much a kind of um, a low key schedule for me. Um, and so I am, let's say, in between institutional affiliations or loosely affiliated with a couple of institutions. Uh, but I've chosen online to give my presence a kind of independent art historian because that is easier and, and more clear cut. Absolutely. I, I mean, it's a good point. A couple of really great points you make there about, first of all, the sort of frequently gendered nature of those kinds of decisions. Um, but also, I, I, the first thing you said about like, letting listeners know um, about the sort of different ways you can conceive of maybe let's say scholarship or, or research um, particularly yeah. in this day and age where think- things trajectories of today yeah. simply look as simple and straightforward as they might have done 25 years ago. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that, that there are ways to carve out your niche or um, uh, find ways to go forward that are sort of maybe not what what certainly people of, of my generation would, would be that familiar with, but it's that seems to be the way things are, are maybe going for a lot of people now. 
coming to BIU, what I found so great are these opportunities to have conversations. It is really a privilege to bring your research to a broader audience. It's the human connection. It's full of music and celebration and color. A totally different worldview that is in so many ways so much healthier for the planet we all share. It's great to make those connections and it's great to be able to have those conversations. To create meaningful and positive change in communities. So why not use the arts to have a conversation about how the arts can have an impact? Greetings and salutations. This is Leon Potter from the Theatre Department at Vancouver Island University, and you are listening to Conversations in the Arts and Humanities, here on CHLY 101.7 FM, Nanaimo. Nineteen oh nine, I think. Marinetti. My Italian is terrible, so I'll just say it. I'm not gonna try <laughs> try to pronounce okay. Marinetti correctly. Okay. <laughs> uh, publishes a manifesto of futurism, sort of setting out, you know, here's here's what this this thing is going to be. Um you know, that's for a lot of our listeners, that's a really, really long time ago. It's funny, our department, English department at VIU, we just made the decision to sort of um, sunder 21st and 20th century literature, which previously were, were kind of not necessarily taught together, but they were, they were sort of thought of as being, yeah, they're kind of together. And of course, for a lot of people we teach now, that's a completely different historical epoch that pre you know predates their life. <laughs> Whereas for, you know, I, I still, in, in weird moments, think of like late 20th century literature as con- quote unquote contemporary. So, so 20th century, to put it simply, is receding fast. Yeah. Um, long time ago. But what do you think that maybe futurism has to teach us? You know, we who are living in a moment of techno fetishism, we might say, or technological technophilia, um, nascent kind of neo fascism. Uh, I would argue to kind of quite a manifesto rich culture we we live in now with maybe more in the form of sort of tweets. Um, so maybe some striking parallels, I, I think with, with, with some, some of the conditions of the early 20th century, what, what are some things we can learn from futurism today? Yeah, there are so many things. So that's a huge question. Um, I'm sorry. And it took a long time to ask. It. <laughs> no, that's okay. But just to touch on um, a couple. Yeah. Uh, The first thing I think that is really crucial that futurism can teach us is that for the futurists, what they called it was machinolatria, so a love of machines or technolatria. Um, 
So uh, a fascination, a love, even an obsession with machines and with technology. Um, and there's a lot of research that's been done on the nature of technology. What does technology do for us? What does it cost us? And in every era, many scholars have pointed out the fact that technology is a double-edged sword. It gives us so much on the one hand. It gives us solutions to problems. Um, and yet, on the other hand, it always can become um, a devastating tool in the hands of those who uh, have malintention, let's say. Um, and so I think one of the things that futurism can, can show us is or when we look back, it can highlight, is precisely that double-edged nature of technology, which we still carry with us, that is born um, uh, with the enlightenment and that we carry forward all the time. And for me, what it's taught me is that technology is never a solution to the underlying moral dilemmas that we have as a society. Technology is good in the hands of good-intentioned people, and it is bad in the hands of bad-intentioned people. And that is as simple as it is. Um, so, and that is certainly true, for example, of the airplane. It's perhaps the superlative example of that in the 20th century. Here is the, you know, I think of the Miyazaki's film, The Wind uh, Rises, and how here we have the beauty of the airplane, um, this wonderful technology, the dream of mankind that then becomes uh, abused in world war to murder innocent people. And so futurism was a part of that, and it was often seen to be on the side of the ill-intentioned, but that was actually not always the case. So I think the second thing I would like to emphasize that futurism teaches us, and this is particularly important um, for today, I think that, again, via technology, a lot of things have been increasingly simplified, meaning ideolo ideologically, we've often um, recently been been divided uh, on you know issues it's black or white it's good or bad um yet what we really need to get back to is how complex things are how gray things are um and how in fact we need to encourage thinking and we need to encourage dialogue um, across all of these divides. So one of the things that has often been done to futurism is a kind of uh, blacklisting of it as a right-wing group of, uh, of, of misogynist, um, uh, war-hungry men. And um, in fact, what we do is we simplify the alien other. We make out of that group or that person or that movement a kind of bad guy. And in fact, what that does is it makes us right and it prevents us from interrogating what are the forces in society that motivate these kind of radicals? What are the forces in society that drive people to violence, to war, to misogyny, to hate? Um, and that's what needs to be examined, not a kind of blacklisting, but a, again, a dialogue, an interrogation. And that's not an apologia for those those people. No. Um, it's just that you cannot 
move forward and improve society by um, alienating. It's a great point. I, and I would, I would add that, um, you know, it's so self-congratulatory too, I think, to, to sort of look back on, you know, the futurists, for example, and say, oh, look at, all, look at what they didn't know or look at, look at all the bad things they said. And you, you yeah. sort, it sort of short circuits your own self critique in a way, right? Because because you can't, like you say, you alien, you have this enemy other that you can then say, well, that, they're the bad guy. Look at how great we are. That is and, exactly right. That's exactly yeah, it yeah. simplifies this relationship. Simplifies yeah. And another third point that might actually be useful um, in in highlighting is the fact that the futurists at the beginning of the 20th century were so far forward in thinking about questions that now we frame in terms of post-humanism and new materialism, um, the idea of multi multiple subjectivities and the idea that we could uh, refashion ourselves to be gender neutral and to be um, uh, to be to be uh, freer entities. Uh, that is is was part of the dialogue, part of the discourse of the futurists. So there are elements there that are both progressive and regressive. And that's often the way with these movements. Was it strictly an Italian movement or were there futurists? I mean, I know these labels, I mean, it's interesting because it's sort of something that I think was labeled by, by some of the people doing it, right? Whereas a lot of movements kind of get labeled retrospectively. But yes, what, the, what, the important yeah. thing about that, that's a great question mm. to clarify, because what I study is Italian futurism, but futurism was absolutely an international movement. Um, uh, and it was spearheaded by a man, F.T. Marinetti, who was himself quite an international individual. And he really wanted his futurism to be basically the title for all modernism. So he did a lot. Uh, he was a great publicist. Uh, he traveled to Ru to Russia. He traveled to England. Uh, he traveled across Europe. He traveled to South America to promote futurism. And of course, there were groups that sprung up all over the place. And for anybody who really wants um, a, a supreme resource for that, there is a publication called uh, the International Yearbook of Futurism Studies. And in that context, futurism, global futurism is uh, discussed and, and researched. And it's edited by a fellow named Gunter Berghaus. Um, so what inspires you outside of work? Um, I'm thinking here, hobbies, reading. Yeah. What, 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 you know, we, we're scholars are our people too. <laughs> so what do you do That's outside right. of work? <laughs> well, I'm a runner. So I spend... Uh, a lot of time, I shouldn't say a lot of time, whatever time I can get, because at the moment, you know, raising two small children is sort of my second job besides research uh, and writing. Um, and that takes up a lot of time, as you uh, will know. Um, but outside of, you know, research, writing and caring for my children, uh, I, I run. And as I think all good scholars, I, I read things that are completely not to do with my field. I've never been one to read much in the way of fiction, but I love reading about Renaissance. I love reading biography. Um, and so and so most of the time I'll pick up a, a book of, of that kind of nature when it's my off time, like Christmas, you know, I'll get a great book that I've been longing to read uh, that has nothing to do with my research. Thank you so much, Jennifer. I'm really looking forward to your presentation and, and thanks for uh, talking to me today. 
Oh, you're welcome. It's my pleasure. You've been listening to Conversations in the Arts and Humanities. Thanks to Jennifer Griffiths for joining me in conversation. Technical production by Robin Davies. Music by Greg Bush. Colloquium series will be back on Friday, October 22nd with a presentation by Eliza Gardner from the Theatre Department titled Great Queen's Scenes. For more information, go to ah.viu.ca and click on Colloquium Series. My name's Theo Finnegan. Thanks for listening. <laughs>